0: And so if you work with your end user and trying to to make sure that their experience makes sense for them, that's user research, right? So translating that and building a really strong narrative around the skills that it is that you do is what's going to be most important to get that first job, right? To get that first UX title. After you get the first one, the second one's a hell of a lot easier.
1: This is Aaron May.
2: I'm John Henry Forster, and this is Awkward. Silences. (laughs) Silence.
1: Silences. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Awkward Silences. Today we're here with Ineola Abioye. She's a senior UX design researcher at Silicon Valley Bank, but also a UX research career coach. She's got a website, which is her name.com, E-N-I-O-L-A-B. I-O-Y-E dot com. And there you can find an offer for uh, a free consultation. So definitely go check that out. Today, we're going to talk about how to break into UX research and you can do that and skip the boot camps if you like. And we're going to talk about, you know, the pros and cons of boot camps and, and other options to break into UX research. So Aniola, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Erin. Yeah, no, I'm happy to be here. Got J here too.
2: Yeah. uh, We've talked to so many UX researchers who are in the field and they all come from all sorts of different backgrounds and walk, but I don't always know how they all got there. So I'm super curious to hear how you think about it and kind of help and coach people through that.
1: Yeah,
0: no, absolutely. So I've been a UX researcher for about six years. I studied biology in college and then, you know, like in college, I have always been kind of a science nerd and thinking about systems and how to solve puzzles and things like that. And I've also been very much of an extrovert my whole life. Right after college, my first role was at a user research and market research firm in the biotech space. So I was very much into the therapy areas and the drug mechanisms, but also I got to do people research and I got to talk to people and it just clicked and, you know, it made sense to kind of merge my loves there. And so I got into it through kind of through exposure, right? Through that first job and didn't necessarily know it was a career path in college. And so now I you know, talk about it all the time because there are tons of people who love science and love people. And there are more ways to kind of merge those in your job than what I thought when I was in school.
1: Yeah. So like H- HCI has been around for a while, right? But it feels like we're really entering, I don't know, this kind of first generation of people now that tech is so enmeshed in every aspect of our lives that are maybe entering college or leaving college with the idea they might want to do something like this. So it feels like a kind of new thing that people are maybe want to deliberately set in on that path versus uh, falling into it. So cool time to be in UX research for sure. Absolutely. And
0: there's so many different pathways. Like, you know, there are the degrees that you see on most UX job postings like psychology and cultural anthropology and HCI is a big one. Human factors is a big one, but there's really no one path. You know, and as far as UX in fields, like it's everywhere, right? Like UX research is everywhere and it's a a discipline in so many different industries and so many different job roles that it's just about kind of honing in on the skills that are transferable and honing in on the experience that you've had. Because a lot of people don't call it UX, but do UX.
2: And so since, because there's a lot of different backgrounds that can be successful in this role, right? And I think you've seen that. I think we've all seen that. How do people go about actually getting some of the relevant experiences so they get taken seriously for some of these opportunities and stuff, right? If you're in an organization and you can move laterally, that probably is a little bit more natural, but if you're in a different field and you're like, this sounds amazing. I like this. And I think I probably have the skills for it. How do people get some reps? Like, How do you figure out if it is for you and how to show future employers that you can do it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I would say get as much exposure as you can to kind of UX theory, right? There's tons and tons out there already. If you search... UX research on Google, so much will pop up and, you know, LinkedIn learning is a really good area. Coursera has a bunch of classes. YouTube has a bunch of classes to get a sense of, you know, day-to-day, is this something that you're interested in doing? Because obviously I love talking to users and that's not what I do every single day of my job. I do a lot of that, but not every single day. And then I would kind of hone into which part of UX most interests you, Um, obviously there's design and research. And for those who are more inclined towards research, there's qualitative, which is why I'm a researcher. And that's what I do. There's quantitative. So folks who are more on the number side, you don't necessarily have to like be extroverted or talk to people a lot to be a UX researcher. And then there's what we call mixed methods. So people who are kind of in the middle or like to employ, you know, methods from both. And so I would just get as much exposure to different methods to see what where your affinity is. And then I would get into it, right? There's so many like job titles that are UX researcher, but you don't necessarily have to have that job title to start, right? Or to gain experience. There are tons of like classes you can do. There are research projects that you can do to start to build up your portfolio. You know, I've done smaller projects where I'm asking a bunch of my friends about their experiences moving to a new home or getting a new job or, you know, kind of like the day-to-day things, how it's been to survive in COVID, you know, all the different um, realms of that. So you don't necessarily have to be paid by a company to do UX to actually like get into it, right? And learning those methodologies and kind of flexing that muscle and talking to users who are, you know, we're users, our friends are users, our families is really just to get into it because there's so much that you learn by doing and by talking to people.
1: Yeah, taking a step back, I imagine we have folks listening who are interested in breaking into UX research and already know that. Maybe we have some folks listening who are UX, I'm hearing about it all the time. like why UX? What you know, is this like a growth field? What's it all about? Where is this going? What's my career maybe look like if I get in here?
0: Yeah. Well, especially in the past like five to ten years, UX has really popped up as, like a very sexy kind of feel to hop into especially within tech and it's i think part of the reason is because companies are really realizing that focusing on building user-centered products and focusing on including users in building out the experience um, of their company or their product is what really sets them apart right and folks are investing so much money into that because it proves itself it proves its value and it's a really good return on investment When it comes to how they see their participation and their use of products go up based on, you know, people having an experience that they love. And the best way to get to building those experiences is to ask people. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so, you know, UX design has been around for um, a little bit longer. And so companies tend to build up kind of their design function more, but companies are really starting to incorporate UX research as a really important function that works in alignment with design and in alignment with product and data to understand our users and build from there.
2: As you're trying to gain that initial understanding and and doing kind of your own research on this area and in and of itself, you mentioned all the free resources and all the things you can find online about it, which I agree with, like very exhaustive, is that going to cover it well enough or or is it really helpful for people to try to reach out and connect with somebody actually in the field and maybe have like a, you know, a coffee type chat or something like that and, and like hear it a little bit more firsthand. Is that like, should that be part of someone's strategy or is that different?
0: Yeah. Like you said, there are really like exhaustive resources out there on learning how to do UX, how to analyze data and how to, you know, shape your insights. And I think having a kind of guidance of someone in the field to narrow it down, right? Or to yeah. help like just guide you as you're walking through all of the different resources so you don't get overwhelmed. I think it's really helpful to, to hear from someone who's in the field, like what, it does your day-to-day look like? Because UX looks a little bit different depending on the industry, depending on the company you're in. So yeah, you're right. I think guidance is really helpful. And I think it, it depends on what kind of learner you are. And I know we'll get into this later, but UX boot camps really help with, if you need the structure and if you need kind of a curriculum, like I just need to show up to this class or this session and you're gonna tell me what it is that I need to know and you're gonna give me bite-sized pizzas. If you are more kind of open to ambiguity, and you're fine to kind of organize information and and that's how your brain works, then I would absolutely suggest finding the resources online and kind of perusing through and and getting your bearings kind of on your own or just with some individual guidance, because it'll it'll save you a lot of money in the long run.
1: Yeah. Which leads me a little bit to the question too of like, how much do you need to know to get started or to, let's say, have a full-time job as doing UX research, whether that's your title or not, because yeah. obviously it's a lifelong process learning the craft or could be, yeah. and you're not going to know everything you will ever know when you get started. And Absolutely. so, you yeah. know, as a couple of modules in a Coursera course enough, or how do you, you know, for someone new with this, when's a good time to maybe go from learning theory to more practice, more mm-hmm. making it part of your job?
0: yeah well i know it's a little bit different than when i started but i started my first ux job with basically nothing with just the core tenets of i was really i had a really strong affinity towards like talking to people and really holding space for people to understand you know their experiences and kind of allow them to share their stories but As far as UX language and, you know, design thinking and human-centered design, I started with about nothing. And I'm seeing so many apprenticeships and companies recognizing that junior researchers are really important and growing the research field is super important. And so they're investing into those earlier on folks who are starting. But I see a lot of job postings that are, you know, a year to three years. And it depends on really where the company is at, too, because I see a lot of companies who are, you know, they're hiring their first UX researcher. Right. So they're expecting a lot of people to come in and tell us what UX is and tell us how to do UX research and how to structure the function. And it's a tall ask it's a really big ask. And so I don't recommend those kind of first researcher on a team jobs for people who are just starting out because they're going to look to you as the subject matter expert. So I would look more towards established UX teams where they have the resources to invest in you and grow with you shadow folks and really get your bearings as you're, you know, learning UX and getting into the, the job role, but it differs everywhere. I think, especially because so many of the skills are transferable, If you're working around product or you're doing any type of Surveys or asking questions, or really like serving people. Customer service is is super close to UX. Things like product and design, because so many people incorporate user research without necessarily having the title, or or I'll say good product design incorporates user research, right? Even if you're not necessarily the researcher. And a lot of people are using kind of the tools online that make it easy, like D Scout and like, you know, user testing. And so if you have, you know, familiarity with that, or you're just, In general, in your workspace, you work with your end user and trying to to make sure that their experience makes sense for them. Um, That's user research, right? So translating that and building a really strong narrative around the skills that it is that you do is what's going to be most important to get that first job, right? To get that first UX title. After you get the first one, the second one's a hell of a lot easier. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. Totally. So there's a sentiment from uh, somebody I follow online for just like creative work in general, uh, Austin Kleon, who will talk about, you know, focus on the verb, not the noun. So like, if you want to be a writer, just focus on writing. Like, don't yeah. worry about like how you make yourself a writer. And it sounds like you're kind of saying something similar with research of like, if you want to get familiarity and practice with, you know, becoming a researcher, like find ways to do research. Sure, and so I was exactly. curious on that part to double down a little bit, like, you know, obviously you could just come up with anything like fictitious of, hey, this is maybe a problem or a pain point I think people have, and I can ask friends or family and do research there. You could maybe do something for free for a small company that would be game exactly. to like, let you do something or like, what, if you're going to try to go out and like do some research to get your hands dirty, like, how do you find a project that's like going to be good or interesting so that you can go talk about it and take credit for it? Like, what does, you know, what does that consist of? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I always recommend to my clients, people will let you volunteer and do user research for them, right? Because it's usually something that's really expensive, especially when people don't have a kind of in-house researcher. So local organizations that you care about or things that you volunteer with already, ask them what kind of questions they have for the people that they serve and start there, right? Because it's going to be those are your stakeholders, right? The people who care about your research. And so it's gonna be important to them, right? And it's gonna teach you a lot. And then as you're building out kind of the deliverables for them or you know, sharing basically what you heard from people that becomes part of your portfolio. And then you continue to build on that and you can start asking bigger questions or different types of questions. So yeah, there's no shortage of questions out there to answer that people Mm -hmm. really care about, right? If you're choosing something that is kind of, you know, you're not with an organization and you don't have anyone who has a question, think about the things that you are really passionate about, right? So think about the products that you use, what really is a pain about using them and then what you really like, right? Think about your phone or your computer or, you know, certain applications that you're using, right? Because things that a lot of people are using these days, you know, like Zoom and like social media and things like that, there's no shortage of people who would be willing to talk about it. And if, you know, if you're pretty passionate about some of the like either really good things or really bad things about using something, my bet is that other people are too. and you can figure it out and then incentives don't necessarily have to be huge right they don't have to be gift cards they can be like you know hey like come over can i ask you some questions and i'll you know make you dinner or i'll you know (laughs) you can get really creative it's just all about like
1: yeah yeah, that's cute. I, can, I imagine a, a temptation might be to, I don't know, critique like the app you work for or something, right? Like I found all these problems, you know, I could imagine that maybe not going over very well, right? For a new, <laughs> you know, maybe it's like a safer space to find a, an external kind of side project or something along, along those lines.
0: Or low stakes.
1: I know, I know, like right now, and it's early for a lot of companies later for others, but accessibility, huge topic, very important. And when it comes to UX and UX research, right, one of the barriers potentially to accessibility can be this kind of insider language, right? Mm -hmm. Or just understanding what are people talking about when they talk about whatever. Could you help us demystify some of that a little bit? Like yeah. for people who are new to UX research, what are what's some of the lingo, you know, to to yeah. maybe give folks a leg up?
0: Yeah, we should do like a glossary or something. Right. But, um,
1: <laughs>
0: but I totally hear you. Yeah, like folks will commonly say end-to-end research, right? And so it's pretty self-explanatory, but they want to know, you know, from the very beginning to like planning and strategizing what kind of questions you're asking, what kind of methods, all the way to the end of the different phases of research of Evaluative, so like understanding and then getting into the iterative research, which is essentially, you know, I've built a prototype, whether it's lo fi or mid fi, or I've, you know, built a possible experience. Let's get it tested and let's see how people respond to it. And then that validation phase of understanding, you know, okay, people responded to it pretty well as far as the design. Let's get on a bigger scale and see you know, if people really like it, or if it works in different user groups or segments, you'll hear a lot. You'll hear stakeholders a lot, and that's essentially the people who care about your research, right? So the people that you're working with alongside or for. So in my space, that's um, usually product folks, that's designers, that's content strategists, that's like, data engineers or developers, people who are actually building out the project or the product. What else do you have any in mind that you want to demystify in particular?
1: No, I know, we, you know, when we were talking about this episode, we were talking about, you know, how it's important when you want to become part of this or any community, right. To be able to speak the language of the people you're going to be working with. And so, yeah, any tips to, to help folks be able to fake it till they make it or sound like they know what they're talking about? Or do you have yeah. any, do you have any pet peeve, fuzzy words that you don't like or think are overused? Oh, wow. <laughs>
0: I have pet peeves in general. Yeah,
1: so I saw in the chat ROI, return
0: on investment. That's always huge too. And especially when working with stakeholders who aren't necessarily ingrained in research and don't know kind of how valuable research is or ideally what the ideal situation of how to run research is. So calculating, there are ways to calculate the return on investment and, you know, convey that to folks. You'll hear sample a lot, which is how, you know, who you're talking to, the people you're talking to. When it comes to things on the resume, understanding what impact you made at a company is super important. So like I always say to folks, like your resume should be translated into the language of UX, but also should read your impact on a company rather than what your job description says right? And I think it's especially important nowadays because folks who are kind of scanning resumes or looking at LinkedIn's and reaching out are oftentimes recruiters or sourcers. And so not necessarily actual researchers are always looking. Recruiters and sources and people who are specific to UX are, know these keywords that they're looking for and know how to kind of recognize experience, but oftentimes not to, to the degree of seeing a resume and like kind of like deciphering what skills you have, in what areas you may have done user research in order to do your primary job function. So it's really important to give them what they're looking for if that's the case for you. So like building that strong narrative and like building a resume or kind of translating a resume that makes sense to folks who are looking for it is super important, especially when you don't have that UX researcher title just yet.
2: All right, a quick awkward interruption here. It's fun to talk about user research, but you know what's really fun is doing user research, and we want to help you with that.
1: We want to help you so much that we have created a special place. It's called userinterviews.com slash awkward for you to get your first three participants free.
2: We all know we should be talking to users more, so we went ahead and removed as many barriers as possible. It's going to be easy. It's going to be quick. You're going to love it, so get over there and check it out.
1: And then when you're done with that, go on over to your favorite podcasting app and leave us a review, please.
2: And to to build on this, there's actually two questions uh, in here, one from Yasmin and one from Diego that are similar to a question I was going to ask anyway. So I think we're all on the same page here is when you don't have that real world experience yet of being, you know, in a proper UXR role, how do you make like a great portfolio that stands out and shows that you've learned stuff and you've been doing some research on your own and maybe volunteer basis or whatever it may be. especially in Diego's point here is that, you know, research can be a little bit of a harder thing to visualize, right? If you're an entry-level designer, you can show off some of your design work or stuff like that. But what are the things that stand out? Because I, I look at a lot of like entry-level design portfolios or, or software yeah. engineers coming out of boot camps. And there are certain things that like separate, you know, different design case studies. I'm curious what those things are on the research side. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I remember working with a client and I was talking about portfolio and they were like, no, I'm not a designer. I'm a, I'm a researcher. And I was like, well, you still need a portfolio. Yeah. So some key things that that separate portfolios for me is folks really want to see one, a range of projects. So like I want to see you asking different types of questions. Mm. So if you're, you know, a common research method is IDIs or in-depth interviews. And it's essentially, you know, kind of one-on-one, having a conversation and delving um, deeply into something. IDIs are great, but they're very much so not the only research method. So I want to see a range of methods. And are you comfortable with kind of getting creative based on the type of question you're looking to answer, the type of people you're looking to talk to? I'd say the biggest thing is it's important to see why you made decisions that you made. And th- that the why is honestly more important than the what. Because as you're as someone is looking through your portfolio or you're doing a portfolio review, folks want to understand how it is that you think right? So what your research process is, the methods that you chose and why, the sample mm-hmm. that you chose and why, the length of time of the project and why, <laughs> you know, and if your project took two months, fantastic. How would you do it in two weeks? If your project took two weeks, how would you do it if you had six months? Kind of where the questions came from. They want to see decisions that you made along the way and why. They want to see kind of what you are responsible for and impact what your deliverables look like. Because essentially when you're doing a portfolio review or you're showing, you're presenting your portfolio, you're giving folks, um, whether it's a job interview or or a presentation or something, you're giving folks a a preview of what it would be like to actually work with you as a researcher. Because your portfolio is essentially what we call a research readout. And that's at the end of a research project, the presentation where it's really a conversation between the whole team where you're presenting your findings and talking about next steps and you're you're talking about your sample and kind of why you did the approach that you did. Having those kind of like background, you know, this is what we were looking at and this is why we did it this way. It, in a portfolio, it's super important to to kind of assess if something, if anything were different or if you could have the chance to do it over again, what is it that you would change?
1: Is it, in, is it important to show... And then what happened was like the the changes that were made in the product or the ROI of those changes or how excited all the stakeholders were, or is that sort of... You know, I'm not responsible for what happens with this research, but just the quality of the research and the insights.
0: Yeah, yeah. You want to show your impact, right? And we know researchers don't necessarily have the final say, and we oftentimes never have the final say, right? But we present what it is that we found and what it is that we hear to be true, and it's really our responsibility to, because we're user facing, to communicate what we heard, whether it's, you know, good, bad, constructive or not. And then, you know, you can be honest about what your next step was there, whether that's doing a research readout, whether that's creating, you know, principles to design based on, whether that's doing some co-design and iterating on a product. And a lot of times when it comes to portfolios, people are concerned that, you know, things are private, right? And that's not necessarily important. Folks don't need Numbers, they don't need names, they don't need kind of the specifics of who this was and what the product is and how well it's been doing on the back end, but they want to know how you approach the research. So you don't have to, even if it's private or you sign an NDA, and oftentimes when you're working with a company, you're not going to share kind of the inner workings, anyways. And folks understand that. Kind of interviewers understand that, you know, speaking engagements will understand that. What's really like on on in the spotlight is your approach.
2: Yeah, I especially like the point of being honest and open about, you know, what you would do differently if you're doing it again or, or things you learn and stuff. I, I think sometimes people are afraid to sh- share that earlier in their career because it kind of feels like you're admitting to a mistake or a misstep or whatever. But I think what if you're actually in the other side of the table, it's a real sign of maturity and like self-reflection to be able to identify those things. I mm-hmm. remember um, talking to a junior software engineer, came out of a boot camp and was sharing us about this, like, you know, app he had made to apply himself and stuff. And there's a story in there where he told, you know, I hit this thing and I couldn't figure it out. And so he put in this like huge hack just to get it working because he had a couple of friends using it. And um, and he's like, and it got working. And then I spent the next couple of days refactoring it to actually be like written well and, and be code. And it was just like, it was like the best story to hear because it was like you understood that like, you know, you wanted to get to a working version and you didn't let yourself like spin your wheels forever. You got something done and then came back to the problem. And it's like, that's how you do it. And, and sharing those examples, I think, is really important. So I love that uh, tip yeah. as well.
0: And it shows the level of analysis too, which is super important as a researcher, because oftentimes I spend time, you know, analyzing insights and kind of getting creative and building out strategy. So it shows that like humility and that approach of, okay, I'm going to get creative as far as research, because the end goal is the end goal. It's not about ego or, you know, whatever, like I make mistakes (laughs) all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And if you're not, if you're like sitting in rigid, like a rigid space and you're not willing to be creative that speaks to some hangups you'll have as a researcher
2: totally the last thing I just on that while we're on the portfolio topic if I can quickly what what sort of format did people do this in is it like a blog post and it's written out is it slides should you record yourself talking through it like what uh what seems to resonate with people
0: yeah, I've seen people get really creative. A lot of people have online portfolios that are kind of just like on their websites and available for for folks to see. Some people do Prezi, some people do PowerPoint, and I say depending on what you want your portfolio to do, you can structure it different ways. If you're looking for you know consulting work and you're open to to come on as a contract UX researcher for different companies, I think having your website out there and marketing your skills is awesome, and I think it's most accessible for folks. If you're in a job interview and you're reviewing your your portfolio. I like a structure that's similar to how you would present a research readout. So even if you have a website, I find it um, helpful to put it into a PowerPoint so you can present kind of slide by slide and it's not as overwhelming and it's easier to craft the story. Because when you're giving delivering your insights, you're really telling the story of what it is that you heard and who you heard and describing their journey or their experience within a product. So PowerPoint is often really easy to, to create a story kind of slide by slide and not make it overwhelming all at once.
1: Awesome. Yeah. I love that. You made me think about the idea of a portfolio, really telling the story potentially of your career and the progression and what you learned over time, which is opposed to a static Here's a thing, here's a thing, here's a thing. But obviously, you have more of a story to tell over time the longer your story is. But I think that's sort of beautiful. We have a ton of questions, but before we jump uh, into those, I wanted to ask a little bit about boot camps because I know it's part of our title. And I think, you know, your take is not no boot camps, never always a bad idea, but that there, I think, are some good alternatives for a lot of people in a lot of situations. So let's talk about you know, what are some of the pros and cons of like a UX or a UX research bootcamp?
0: Yeah, so I'm not fundamentally opposed to bootcamps, right? I think they do what it is that they're supposed to do really well. And I think it's just important to understand what is the, they're meant to do. I think bootcamps are meant to expose you really quickly to a field that you're looking to go into. So when it comes to UX specifically, it's meant to show you different types of methodologies and let you get your hands dirty and kind of participate and you know build out, start building out projects and and practicing UX research. But I found that a lot of boot camps are one incredibly expensive. They're just so expensive and they're very lucrative, right? And they're good at what they do and it's a good business model. But they're so expensive, and a lot of the UX boot camps that I've seen have been more so oriented towards UX design with maybe a module or two towards UX research. And so if you know that you are, want to go into UX research specifically, I think being really particular about the type of of bootcamp that you go into is going to be super important. You want a UX research focused one because the other ones will only give you just a little bit and that little bit, especially you can find online. I think also it's a big time commitment, right? So some of them are really fast and you kind of have to give either full-time commitment Or, you know, give up all your weekends for, you know, months and months, which just isn't feasible for some folks. And so I just like to make sure that folks know that a bootcamp isn't the only way even to be recognized, right? There are tons of kind of low cost and free courses and things and certificates to get into the the things like lingo and get some confidence as far as knowing your background in UX. And you don't necessarily only have to do it in a bootcamp. One of the other things I'm cautious with about bootcamps is a lot of people go into that when they're switching into a different field. And so an important piece is, you know, can I be exposed and can I build out a portfolio and understand what the field looks like? But also, can I get my first job? (laughs) Because that's what's going to make this, you know, worth it for me. And I've seen a lot of boot camps who don't really focus on that second part. I'm going to guide you and help you to get, to get your first job because that pivot and getting that first job is the hardest one. And then after that, folks will recognize, okay, you know what it is that you're doing. So I, there, I advise like coaching, if that's something that like resonates well with you one-on-one as a better option and a more tailored option, as far as looking specifically to get into your first job. And I find that boot camps, you know, expose you to different methods and kind of theory, but there's some stuff about UX research that you just can't learn without doing mm. it. There are things that are really important to me because I'm in UX research to really drive inclusive design. I'm here to drive accessibility in product and really talk to people who are, you know, part of the major segments of a product, but also folks who are at the margins and that hold product accountable to be building for all of our users, not just some of them, right? Whether that's repeating our narrative over and over again, but really you know, it's our responsibility as research to drive that inclusion and drive that diversity of product. Some, you know, boot camps just focus on kind of like the tactical skills, but there really is a lot of empathy work that you have to do coming into the field. There's a lot of, you know, understanding what it is, what your why is, because folks can tell when you are checking off a box and when you're, you know, kind of just like, want to know what they, what feature they need to build or what, you know, kind of UI they like versus I'm here to actually listen to your story. And as researchers, we hear all types of stuff that are absolutely um, not related, directly related to the product, but are part of our user's experience, right? So it makes sense. We hear about their relationships and their families and trips and hobbies and getting them to kind of feel comfortable bringing their whole self to the interview is super important because otherwise they're not going to tell you the truth. (laughs) they're going to tell you things that you they think you want to hear and oftentimes in interviews there's this dynamic where users come to an interview you know with this kind of energy of i hope what i have to say is important i hope it's on par with what other people are saying i hope you know this is worth your time and it's not disappointing and it takes some time in the beginning of each interview it's important to take that time to like disrupt that right and so to like express how grateful we are because In reality, we're so grateful when people show up to interviews (laughs) and when people are willing to participate because we literally can't do our job without talking to people and and communicating with our users. So disrupting that dynamic of, I hope it's okay that I'm here to, we're so happy you're here. And absolutely anything you say is so helpful. Like those kind of things Mm that like really like deeply caring. One of my pet peeves is When I see researchers who are doing, you know, obviously we're mostly remote now giving an in-depth interview or or running an interview kind of on zoom and like in between questions, like looking down and like writing. And I'm like, you're the whole like point is to connect with your user and you kind of disconnecting, right. And doing something else is hard. It's really hard to to stay connected with. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of goes against that tenant. I was going to
1: note taker. Protein. Yeah. Yeah. We'll record
2: recordings <laughs> go a long way too. Yeah. We'll that works too. Transcription,
1: <laughs> yeah. all of that. But yeah, I, yeah um, I, w- I wanted to say like all those soft skills are so important and then like tangent, you know, we need to really stop calling them soft skills, right? Because I mean, they're so important in life, but certainly in UX research, like what even is it that you can't connect to other people? Absolutely. Um, so yeah, thanks yeah. for highlighting that. It's hard to imagine I don't know. Maybe there are boot camps that are really good at that, but like the idea of boot campifying empathy and human mm-hmm. connection, yes, <laughs> like feels
0: feels a little weird. <laughs> no, some boot camps do a good job. I just boot camps are definitely not the only option, is what I'm right. trying. To,
1: um, yeah, to and say. it's a big leap to go from like, hey, I think I might be interested in this career path to like, I'll quit my job and drop twenty thousand dollars and. You know, that's right. one way to go, but not, and then not you're really putting with. yourself
2: on a t- tight timeline because your point getting that first opportunity is really tough and now you're under a ton of stress because you've made this huge change you invest all this money and you know you're not giving yourself a lot of breathing room it's not a bad path if you can do it, but you are you right. know you're taking on some stress other, to go.
1: Otherwise, right.
0: it definitely yeah. works for some people yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: The, the one quick thing I'll just throw on boot camps, just because I've met so many designers who've come out of them is, and I think they can be really effective to your point about like a crash course and just learning so much so quick, mm-hmm. is a lot of them will tell you how to kind of present yourself in a very similar way in terms of the way you make your resume or the way you make your portfolio. Mm-hmm. And as a hiring manager who's seen a lot of these things, you get to the point where you can honestly tell like, oh, this portfolio came from this bootcamp. And so just find ways to put your own personality still in there mm-hmm. and, and whatever you yeah. do. Because I think, you know, Not that those things are bad practices and they're great portfolio templates, but you know, you still want your own personality to come through and stand out a little bit and not just be, you know, cookie cutter. So I know cookie cutter
0: or rigid is definitely not the goal. You know, my portfolio always has a little bit about me. You know, I'm from Oakland. I live here now. I love my city. What I do outside of work, the community work that I do, it it impacts how I show up as a researcher. And it's part of me, you know, like all the travel that I do and adventure and, and learning. And that's totally part of what I bring to the table as a researcher. So it's yeah. not, you know, a side thing to mention. It's, yeah, you know, can yeah. you
1: show up. All right. We have 20 minutes and more than 20 questions. So we, we're going <laughs> to just bang through these and we're going to go for popularity and variety. Right. So we'll try yeah. to cover what a lot of people want to know about in a variety of topics. So just to dig right in a few people want to know any advice for someone looking to make the switch from psychology, which is, uh, you know, is there's lots of paths, but that's one for sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: No, that's a really solid path. It's, it's yeah. kind of one of the more popular ones um, because in psychology, depending on what type of psychology you're studying, really like harp on the kind of like emotional intelligence or studying how people think or, you know, and why they do what they do. So getting into like a little bit of human factors, but I would emphasize the kind of people's responses and people's action based on, you know, what our psychology is in general and how tapping into that is really important to, to build things for people, right? Because people are going to use things that they're, that they resonate with. So tying that into whatever product area you're looking to go into will be really important. But as far as psychology, if you're in academia and you have a psychology degree, you're learning a lot of theory that comes into design thinking and human-centered design. It's just about applying it into, you know, a design space. And oftentimes when you read job um, postings and they ask for a relevant degree psychology is always on there.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: It's a really easy transition, I think. And as far as just like guidance and turning some of that theory into practice, I think coaching can really help kind of narrow in your, your plan or your strategy as far as transitioning, but that's a really solid background to transition into UX. Folks really recognize it. Yeah. Cool.
2: Here's a, here's a quick one I'll throw in. Do you have a number one book recommendation for someone switching careers and interested in UX?
0: I read one of the first books I read around UX was thinking fast and slow and I'll find it. I don't know if that's the exact title, but, um, it's all around kind of what the assumptions that we make in our brain and how we, what we do automatic that we don't automatically that we don't necessarily recognize and kind of just like breaking down how people and how people act based on that. In research we do, as far as methodologies, there are some that are attitudinal, So based on what people say they'll do, and then there are um, methods that are more behavioral. So what do you actually do? (laughs) And we know that there's oftentimes a distinction. So I think that book kind of helps to, to demystify some of that. I've
1: got one here. As a queer woman of color, I often find myself in teams that are mostly composed of men. I recently transitioned from graphic design to UX design, and I'm still finding that I'm not as confident talking to devs about my decisions in UX as i used to be when working with other graphic designers. Yeah. Do you have any advice on how to overcome this and appear more assertive?
0: Yeah. Oh, i love this. Thank you for the question. I would say it's when working with stakeholders it's super important to understand that what they find important and it's different in different groups of stakeholders. So, you know, whether they're developers or product managers, One of the things that really ties it together is people care how well the product does. And so at the basis of that, at the foundation of that is what are we hearing from our users and how are they responding to what it is that we're building? So I always, when I'm doing a research readout or when I'm sharing research, I bring in the user's voice, the actual user's voice, right? So whether you're doing video clips or audio clips, whether you're doing quotes, you know, something that most people can't argue with (laughs) is what it is that you're hearing directly from the user because that's what people care about right? As far as metrics, as far as, you know, am I doing a good job or are we as a company doing a good job is how are our users respond responding? And as researchers, we're very much so kind of the um, just communicating that, right? So I, especially when it comes to like hard things that are coming through or constructive feedback, i let them hear it directly from the user. And that really helps in in building that trust time over time. Because as we go through, as I'm working with a new team and I'm building relationships, building the trust of, you know, we thought something was great and now we have feedback that's going to make it a ton better. You start to trust research more and they'll trust the researcher more, right? Because you obviously know what you're doing because you're getting really helpful feedback or insights.
2: Yeah. I think to just developers in general, I think that's all very like amazing advice is just uh, different people have different communication styles. In my experience, you know, some developers you work with, not because of any judgment they're making against you can sometimes come across as more direct or less engaged in something. And it, it can be just the way that they communicate with people. And obviously it can uh, give off different impressions, to different folks, depending on how you're engaging with them. But being aware that um, some of that may not be as a result of who you are and just maybe the way that they tend to communicate and, and you know. I don't know what to do about that necessarily, but i something to be aware of. They have a different communication style than sometimes the designers do.
0: So really quickly, if I can, I find something that's really helpful as far as, okay, communicating, you know, hard feedback or like talking to people at the end of the research project is laying that foundation for that in the very beginning. So Mm -hmm. in the calls where I'm, you know, talking to people about some questions that are coming up kind of before even kicking off a project, I'm asking them, you know, how do you measure good? you know, with your product or this feature or this experience or whatever it is that you're testing around, what does good look like? So what do our metrics look like? You'll hear OKRs, right? Objectives and key results. And so you want to know from the very beginning, okay, looking at this new area that I'm looking to do work with, how do you measure good? So that informs the type of questions we ask. And then vice versa, the insights that we're getting back from users should inform our, our OKRs. Right. So it's this triangle of like, that needs to be in lockstep for, for research to be the most ideal. So in the very beginning, when you're getting on the same accord of how do you measure good, you understand what they're looking for as far as this is the driving force for the team so that you can communicate things that make sense as far as how they're looking at the product. Then they're more inclined to listen to you. And they're more inclined to, to find helpful what it is that you bring out of research.
1: Yeah. Going on the kind of theme of, I guess, uh, sort of inclusion and diversity, we've got one about career switchers who are maybe 40 plus or, you know, not right out of school. Uh, I often read entry level job postings that have vaguely ageist classifiers, like being part of a young dynamic team, or are only open to recently matriculated students. What's your opinion about some of that language? Or, you know, if you're maybe not brand new in your career, making a switch?
0: Yeah, I think, Job applications shouldn't or job postings shouldn't say that. I think yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking, really, they're yeah. not supposed to say yeah. that. Yeah, um, but I think that to me communicates that the team is a little bit immature, because really as researchers, when you have diverse kind of perspectives and you're coming from a non-traditional like background or path, that adds so much to what you bring as a research. Like I started out in biotech, and then I was in healthcare, and now I'm in finance, right? But that that brings that helps me bring more as a researcher than if I was on like a traditionally just a finance path. And because I started out in healthcare and in biotech, I'm quite used to talking to people about very intimate intimate topics, right. That you don't necessarily want to talk to a stranger about. So this, like it grounded me in this importance of holding space. And so that's just an example of non-traditional backgrounds or diverse perspectives coming into research is a plus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. I am sorry that there are job posts that say that, but they really shouldn't. And it just communicates that they don't know um, exactly how much of a, of an add-on that is, but I would flex the different perspectives that you bring. And I would flex the, the path that you took because it makes you, and that's what you bring as a researcher. Would you apply or do you run away <laughs> if, um, from a posting like that. I think if it's, I mean, it's up to the person, but if it's uh, in a space that you really want to be in and you really like the, the company or the product and really resonate with it. And I think it's worth reaching out directly. Right. So not necessarily just like submitting application, but reaching out. Yeah.
2: Yeah, There's a handful of questions around people trying to transition from like adjacent roles, right? So yeah, yeah. I'm a product marketer, I'm a PM, I'm a UX designer, I'm a business analyst, I think I got most of the ones that were mentioned. Is that easier? Because you're kind of already in that world? Or is it you go about it differently? Because you have some of maybe the overlap on the Venn diagram, but you're not a researcher? How do How do people in those types of roles go about it?
0: Yeah, I think I think for some people it may be easier, especially since you're exposed to user research in those roles, or you should be exposed to user research to some extent in those roles. And so I would advise to first start with building out a strategy of how you incorporate user research into your your key role and how you know a lot of designers run user research themselves or product folks depending on the resources at a company. So I would, you know, if you're working with a researcher, try to figure out how to take some of that on. And if you're able to consult with a researcher even better, To understand like, okay, well, can I draft a research plan based on a template and then, you know, get your feedback or can I draft an unmoderated test and get your feedback? Watch user research sessions. I always offer for my team to hop in and kind of be a fly on the wall and be on mute (laughs) and no video, but watch and see what kind of conversations are happening and how, you know, there's a discussion guide, but it's just a guide, right? So oftentimes the conversation will take us where the user wants it to go. But I would definitely get as much exposure to to the discipline and then try it yourself as far as like working with a researcher there. And then kind of hone in on how user research plays a role in your work and how you incorporate it and what it's important to help you do. And then speak to that when you're looking to
1: pivot. Back to boot camps for a second. What's the least worst option? (laughs) I did see that question. Um, <laughs> I am not like
0: well-versed yeah. on which boot camps are out now. I think or or what there. what maybe to look for in the league. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So like, as far as names, I'm definitely not going to bash it. Right,
1: right, right,
2: right. <laughs>
0: but like <laughs> I mentioned- Which one is the worst? Yeah. Well, yeah, is, yeah <laughs> name, names. I, like I mentioned, like looking for, if you're into UX research, looking for one that's specifically UX research, because otherwise mm-hmm. there might not be very much UX research. Um, looking for one that has job placement or career coaching or help there. I'm kind of weary of the boot camps that are like there's a guarantee and if you don't get a job within six months, you know. I just I've never been through it, but I've kind of been weary just based on what I've heard. But make sure there's some type of job placement help and coaching there and make sure that the format of the, the bootcamp works for you, right? So are you a, more of a one-on-one person? Are you a small setting? Are you, you know, looking at pre-recorded sessions and being able to jot down the notes and just make sure that the format works for you and that they have the resources to give you what it is that you need out of the bootcamp before you put down 15,000, 10,000, 20,000.
1: Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah. There's a question here of, You know, in the current environment, what do you think is the best way to get a job between networking and applying online? Like, how would you split your time if you- Yeah,
0: I think networking is super important. I would spend when- I'm working with clients and we're looking at jobs and we're building out a strategy of how to apply. I'm really hands-on with understanding like, okay, let's see what's out there and let's start with reading some job postings that people feel really drawn to and let's like dissect it, right? Because a job posting from a company will tell you what it is that they're focusing on. And there's a lot in between the lines of a job post. So you can see kind of what it'll be like to work there and how mature the team is or how structured the team is. So I would spend a lot of time kind of looking at job postings over and over again to kind of Cipher, what it is that you want to particularly focus on because there's so much within UX research. Networking is huge. So I would spend a lot of time doing informational interviews with UX researchers. And there are tons of resources out there for that. Like I've seen like UX Coffee Chats and Hexagon and their me- mentorship programs and things like that. So there's no shortage of them. So I would find groups of, of folks who are also UX researchers. I find it funny when I see, you know, people who are. Um, joining groups are like looking for mentoring and they uh, identify as like aspiring UX researchers. And, you know, are you a UX researcher or are you not? Right. Whether you have the job or not, like, you have to paint that narrative of and know what it is that you want to do because that gives other people confidence in you. Right. If I'm talking mm-hmm. to someone who like kind of sort of thinks they want to be a UX researcher, you know, I ask them like, find what's your process around finding out if this is actually what you want to do?
2: Yeah. You can also do the kind of like combo where you apply and network simultaneously, right? So you see a job listing you're really excited about and you apply and then you find somebody that works in a, you know, in that department or in a similar role and reach out to them. We've had people do that for some of our roles and it doesn't always work out, but like you will, somebody will take a stronger look at your application or you might get a call because of that initiative. So there's some Mm -hmm. cool stuff like that people can do as well.
0: Yeah. And with interviews, if they don't work out or if it's not a good fit, ask for feedback. I know some companies don't give it, but If you can ask for feedback and just at least take learnings from, you know, every interview, that's going to help you a lot in the job process. I find for UX researchers too, who are in the field or who are doing it or getting practice, one tip that I have that's kind of outside of the norm is to watch yourself talk or want to go back and watch videos, because there's so much that we give away on our face. And in UX research, bias is huge. And being aware of bias is really huge. So like, you know, people have a general bias towards yes, especially in a UX research interview, because they kind of want to make sure that they're satisfying you or, you know, they're getting the answer right, even though there's no right answer. So be careful, like kind of when you smile and like what your eyebrows are doing and, and your eyes and like how you're responding to different answers and conversation
1: question here about salary, which you know, I know it depends, right? Is a short answer. But any (laughs) rules of thumb for people to think about what they, you know, might expect based on location, seniority, you know, what
0: yeah, you know, I'm so weary to say any numbers because just because it just varies so much based on location, based on maturity of the company and what they're looking for. I would say before if you're applying to jobs, before even going into your first interview know what the market is saying so know what your specific market is saying if you're know what kind of your specialty is saying so you know qualitative versus quant how many years of experience did you have are you mixed methods kind of what industries are you coming from to understand what you should be looking for right because it's um, asking for what it is that you want or need, right, for your life is one thing, but asking for what it is that you're worth on the market or your skills are worth on the market is another. So doing that pre-work and that studying is super important because it it never feels good to know that you're being paid under market. Yeah. It just feel is,
1: good. There, is there a resource you like for that, like Glassdoor or something, or is there something specific for UX research? Or talk Glassdoor to friends. Is my favorite. Okay. Uh,
0: yeah, it depends on if you're looking at like bigger companies. Levels, FYI, is great. There are also a lot of resources. There are reports like UXRConf, did, I think now they're called learners, but I can grab the links and send them to you. Yeah. Um, we'll, uh,
1: they, we'll, we'll put a bunch of links in the write up just for yes, folks, for all the things that you're mentioning. Yes, yep. Awesome.
0: Yeah. So some of the resources I like, they did, there are some Excel spreadsheets on like just asking people to report their salaries, which are really helpful. And then you can see they did a report based on kind of market, what's average, what based on years of experience in something, and it's really comprehensive. So I'll definitely share that too. And looking at those type of reports and I've been seeing a lot of floating um, spreadsheets of, you know, people reporting their salary and which is, I always advocate is talk about your salary because it doesn't hurt anyone, but (laughs) it doesn't hurt you as well. Yeah. So there's a lot of resources there and I'll I'll pull some of my favorite ones and, and share.
1: Cool. Fantastic. And I yeah. think we have time for one more question, which JH is going to choose.
2: All right. There was a couple of things here because we, we talked a lot about portfolio stuff. Any favorite portfolio resources, like things people can use? Is it just find a tool that works for you or do you think some are particularly good?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I have some like samples that I work with because I think looking at different samples of different types of research or different types of portfolios really helpful to figure out kind of what you like about each and incorporate that into yours. So I I don't have it off the top of my head, but I have some samples that I personally use, but I would say when building your portfolio, look at as many portfolios as you can, right? So if you search like UX research portfolio, so much comes up on on LinkedIn, including other people's public portfolios. So I would say, just look at as many as possible and make sure to incorporate those kind of the why behind your what, you know, range as far as your research methodologies. And I would say the three biggest things for me. Yeah,
2: There's a funny thing with research where it's just do your research, right? In terms of uh, research salaries, (laughs) research portfolios, research (laughs) the field. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a very meta world. Yeah.
0: And though people tell me all the time that I ask a lot of questions, and I'm like, this is literally what
1: I do for a living. So,
2: <laughs> yeah, I get, I I get paid yeah. to do this for a living.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Aniola, thank you so much for joining us, everybody. It's abioye.com. Check her out and really appreciate all the great advice and insight you shared with everyone today. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. This is yeah, thank
2: amazing. Thanks, everyone, for hanging out with us.
1: Thanks for listening to Awkward Silences, brought to you by User Interviews.
2: Theme music by Fragile Gang.
1: Editing and sound production by Carrie Boyd.